Hey guys, uh, really great to be with you this weekend. It is Father's Day weekend, and so um, it's kind of weird. It's hard to give gifts through the, through the computer or through the tablet or the phone. And so dads, let me tell you what your gift is. The last uh, two weeks, the sermons have been over an hour. Today, I think I'm going to keep it to 59 minutes. Happy Father's Day. Um, but in ser- all seriousness, uh, and I think about the kind of gift uh, that I would love to see uh, us receive as fathers today. It's a real model and understanding of who God's called us to be and a prescriptive nature of how we can be good dads, good men, all those things. And I can't think of a better passage of Scripture to talk about than the one we are today with Stephen. So... If you got your Bibles, go grab them, open them up. We're going to be in Acts chapter 6 and 7. If uh, you, you can feel free to pull it up on your computer or your phone as well. And so what's going to happen now, we're going to pray, and then we're going to jump into this material, okay? Acts chapter 6 and 7. Oh, Jesus, you're good, and you're loving, and you're gracious, and you're kind. You're all those things, Lord. Like, you are really good to us. And so, God, um, all across our area, people are right now um, engaged with you, praying to you, pausing and positioning ourselves before you. And God, a couple things I just know to be true about this moment is for those of us participating in this, we're at least open to the idea that God, you could be real and that you could be loving and that you could be gracious. So God, would you reveal your goodness? Would you reveal your love? Would you reveal your grace to us? today. God, the other thing that I think is beautiful about this moment, if we are here and we've carved out time, then God, we would love, 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 love to experience you and know you. To receive what you have for us, to learn more about who you are and therefore who we are. And so, God, my prayer would be that you would guide um, this talk, this sermon. Love in just a second that we're going to sing a song it talks about how we're asking the Holy Spirit to guide our vision and speaking and hearing and trusting. And so, God, would you, Holy Spirit, would you guide every word that's delivered today? Would you only let your words go forth? Anything that's of me, God, that's not of you, would you strike it from the record? And if necessary, God, would you strike me mute or strike me dead? God, would you please, 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 please harness uh, this time with your power. God, would you please, please, please see our faith and would you allow your faithfulness to intersect in this moment. And um, Lord, would supernatural things occur in our lives, in our families, in our communities, in our world. And we ask all these things in the only name that really can do anything for long-term change and transformation. That's your name, Jesus. We ask these things in your name. Amen. 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 Okay, so Acts chapter 6 and 7. If you've not uh, been brand new with us, happy to have you here. We're kind of in the tail end of a second part of a series on the Holy Spirit, hence the word Holy Spirit on the screen behind me. And so kind of the one of the big ideas of this is uh, Francis Chan wrote a book about it. That this spirit 
who is God, was God from the very beginning, the part of the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit existed from the very beginning. And most of the time when we do preaching and teaching and talking, uh, typically it's focused on the second part, right? Jesus, a little bit of the first, and Francis Chan kind of refers to this Holy Spirit as the forgotten God. Definitely feel like uh, in Western church world, it sure seems to be that way. So it made sense that we would spend some time and some energy trying to understand this part of who God is, right? The Holy Spirit, to really, really understand it. And so back in February, we uh, talked uh, kind of foundationally about who the Holy Spirit is, right? Not a impersonal power, but a powerful person, right? Who is God? And so we discussed that in February, and then now in June, we've been working through okay, now that we understand who the Holy Spirit is, what does that mean for us in our world? And um, how do we uh, engage with that part of God, the, the Spirit? How do we invite the Spirit to lead us, to dwell on us, to guide us, all those things? So we're just trying to uh, work through that. And the way by which we've been working through it is reading about the big move of the Spirit that we see in um, in the book of Acts. So Acts is the kind of the sequel to the Gospels. It's part two. So it's like the Fast and the Furious and the Fast and the Furiouses and the Fasters and the Furiouses, those things. It's like that. So the book of Luke was a story written by a guy named Luke, but it wasn't just a story. It was a biography, a guy who investigated uh, the work of Jesus, investigated his life, went and met with eyewitness, uh, eyewitnesses of Jesus' life. And so Luke kind of captures one of the biographies about Jesus's life. Now, while we would say it's a biography about Jesus's life, it, it could even be safe to say an autobiography that Jesus actually writes through his spirit leveraging Luke, right? So that's the, the gospel according to Luke. And then uh, Luke was so enthralled by the story of who Jesus is. Now that he understands who Jesus is, he now participates in this story, in this uh, restoration of the world. And so as he's participating, he is writing this book of Acts. That's the kind of the actions of the first century followers of Jesus, the apostles, the actions of the apostles. And so we've been kind of uh, reading through and just making some observations and, under, and creating some understanding and application for uh, what it means to live with the Holy Spirit leading our churches, leading our world, and leading our lives. And so, um, but in order to understand that, you got to understand the Holy Spirit's role in the, in the church, in our world, in our life. And this is why we keep going back to this kind of quick review, and it will take me just a second, and I'll, I'll explain to you why, and I don't know, about 20, 30 minutes, why it's important that you understand this review. Really, really important. So don't just, you know, let your eyes glaze over. Don't go get a soda right now, or a pop, or a Coke, whatever you call it. Just lean in for just these few moments, right? This is, this is not, not something you should just kind of, you know, uh, take a break from. And so here's, here's how we have to understand it. In order to understand God, we have to understand what God has revealed to us about us. And the way that we know what God's revealed to us about us, he's given us his word to help us understand that. So the Bible, 66 books. While 66 different books tells one story, it is one thread. There is one theme and motif through the whole thing. So if you read in Genesis all the way to Revelation, there is a story. All the other stories are about this story. That's why we call this the meta narrative, the narrative about the narrative. So every story written in the scriptures points to this big thread that runs throughout the entire Bible. So it's written over 1,600 years, 66 books, and numerous authors, but one story. And this is the story. And the story starts to tell us about this creation. 
creation, right? Creation is this idea that um, there was nothing and then there was something, right? Love this understanding because even as science and other things are trying to figure out how to uh, sort through how we got here, right? And the best we can do with any theories and studies is uh, maybe come up with some uh, possible, plausible ways by which the world came into existence. But in all those uh, plausibilities and possibilities, the only thing that these theories do is tell us how we could have gotten here or what could have possibly happened, but none of them talk about the why we're here, right? And so in, in the story of the Bible, what we find out is in the very beginning, God existed in three distinct persons. And before we ever were, he was there with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And they were in perfect unity and had immeasurable and infinite amounts of love to pour into each other, right? So much love that God decided that what he wanted to do was he wanted to create objects to receive his love and beyond objects humans to receive his love in fact they have a conversation and they say let us make man in our own image in our own likeness why because god wanted to create humans that he could pour out his love on it's not like he was going to run out infinite amounts and so the very first act was an act of god's will in this so he speaks the world into existence and then at the pinnacle of that he creates humans and invites them in to be connected to him in relationship with him in the very beginning that was the plan so god created the first man the first woman and then it tells us this and god walked in the garden in the cool of the night meaning god the triune god was with his people in perfect love and things were beautiful that's what the story of creation tells us in the book of Genesis, right? That's the beginning, an act of the Father's will. So God the Father ushered that in, which is where we always go, well, if God meant for us to feel love and know love and live in this perfect, loving, gracious, beautiful world, like if that's what God did, then why does it not feel loving? Why does it not feel gracious? And why is our world so broken? Which leads to the second part of the, the, the narrative, the thread that runs throughout the Bible. If God's will, act of his will creates us, then uh, the, the, the objects, the, the, the humans by which he creates in an act of their own will, they tell God, you see it in the book of Genesis and see it throughout the scriptures, see it in our own life, see it in our own world right now. They basically say to God, we understand you have a plan, but we like our plan better than yours. In other words, we don't really want to hang out with you in the garden. We'd rather do our own thing. And so God removes himself from that, that connection with us, removes himself, puts up a a veil between us and God, and then announces that there is consequences for this behavior. We call it sin, but it just means that we choose our own plan over God's. Either we do it consciously, we literally say to God, we understand what you want for us, but we'd rather do our own thing. Or, you know, maybe it's not quite as offensive in your mind. You haven't said that, like, directly to God, because you just don't think God exists. So why in the world would you spend time with a God that you don't believe exists, right? So your best option is just to do your own thing, be in charge of your own life. But either way, whether it's consciously or subconsciously or unconsciously, and either, in any of those categories, what we understand and experience is that there is a separation between the God who created us and ourselves. Right, and that's a really terrible story. We talk about it a good bit. We look at it. We make observations about it. You can turn on the news, turn on social media, and you can see all those observations that our world is broken and flawed. And everybody goes, what do we do? Who do we look to to fix this? Is it politicians? Is it policy? Is it new understanding? Is it all those things that have kind of left up to us? We would sense, 
spend the rest of our existence in this crazy cycle where we go from thing to thing to thing to thing in hopes that that thing will fix the last thing, right? Whether that's a government, a politician, a theory, an idea, a policy, a new job, a new spouse, a new house, right? We spend all of our time trying to fix this brokenness. And here's the really crazy part about it. No matter how much we try, deep down you know this, I know this. There's not enough we can do to fix the problem that our world faces. Now, that would be a really terrible end to a story. But this is where the story gets good. So if you read the first 39 books of the the Bible, the Old Testament, it basically helps us understand this. Understands that there is a plan that God created this world, and we kind of went against the plan. And then starting in Genesis 11, God starts whispering about this plan that's going to happen. And he keeps saying, hey, through Abraham, Abraham's a guy. I'm going to bless all nations. Even if they don't do it right, I'm going to bless them. And one day, through Abraham's offspring, there is going to come a Savior. And here's what's crazy. This is a spoiler alert. The Savior is actually God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, right? So God the Father goes, I want my children back. And the best solution for bringing children back is to send his son to go get them. And so the third part of the meta-narrative of the story is uh, this. It's the word redemption. And it it just means to be bought back. And so God says in the scriptures, hey, you've done so much damage to your own life. You can't actually get yourself out of the hole you dug. In fact, the way that God explains it through uh, the writer, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he says the wages of that behavior, that sin, that fall, is death. Sit on that for a second. That God actually says what your behavior, what your scheming has done, the only thing it will lead to is your death. Now, maybe you haven't literally died, but you've experienced that death of relationships death of dreams, death of hopes, right? And so as we sit in our world and look at it, it just seems like there is a lot of grieving going on and we look all around. And that grieving is always grieving death, death. And God says the wages of where our human nature in our world is, is that. It's death. But then God uses the apostle Paul to continue that thought and says, but the gift of God, the gift, meaning free, gift of God, is what? Eternal life. How? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, his Lord, my Lord. So the, the understanding of the scriptures is the God of the universe, an act of his will created it. Human beings, act of our will, just messed it all up. And God, in an act of Jesus's will, comes back and buys us back, covers us, and invites us back to the table, invites us back into a relationship with, with our heavenly father, right? And so if we look at all those things, at this point, we got, you know, three different players and three different, you know, actors in this thing. The first one is God the Father, then humans, and then God the Son. But remember, there's a third part of that trinity. And that trinity uh, is the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit, not an impersonal power, but a powerful person. And an act of his will, will in us bring about what we believe to be restoration. Remember in the garden, when God walked in the garden in the cool of night and all was good? God's plan is to activate that kind of experience here again on earth. The reason we know that is Jesus, when he taught his disciples, his followers, his brothers and sisters, how to pray, he told them that we should pray that the kingdom of heaven, that the kingdom of heaven, that, that, that heaven would be on earth, on earth as it is in heaven, right? And so there's this restoration plan, and this is really beautiful. The restoration plan is— the project manager of it 
the building superintendent, the one who's in charge of that is the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is empowering human lives to bring about good in this world. And so when we look around and go, man, there's just no hope. Things aren't going to get better. There's no way I can fix this. You are 100% correct. But that doesn't mean there's no hope. That doesn't mean it's not fixable. It just means that the only one who can is God himself in the way by which he is doing that. And every day this is happening. As he is empowering his people through his spirit to bring about the kingdom of heaven right here on earth. So that's what we've been watching the book of Acts. And so in the book of Acts, what you see is the first century church get going. Uh, God, Jesus tells them right before he goes and ascends back to heaven, right? So he, he kind of, he, he finished his part here on earth this now, and he's going back to heaven. He says, hey guys, I want you to wait where you are. And then, and, but wait, 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 because at some point in the near future that you're going to receive my spirit so that you can be my witnesses in Jerusalem, that's the city they're in. In Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts of the earth, the world, that's us, right? So this spirit is going to invade people's lives, and there's going to be this empowerment where this good news is going to go into all sorts of ears. And so we've been seeing that happen in the book of Acts, and there's been opposition. There's been opposition from religious folks and government folks. There's been opposition from hypocrisy within. We saw that last week with Ananias and Sapphira. But here's still the crazy thing. While there's been all those things happening, then all those things happening, when we see all this, and yet, and yet with all the opposition, the, the world continues to move forward, and the mission of Christ the gospel continues to grow. In fact, where we find ourselves in Acts chapter 6 and 7, and that it, it's a pretty neat spot because um, at this point, we believe there's probably about 10,000 Christians in Jerusalem. And we think of Jerusalem as this like massive billion people city at the time. It's probably about 40,000 people. So it's illegal to be a Christian. Uh, people are getting murdered for being Christians, thrown in jail and persecuted. And at this point, in this short little time span, just a few weeks, right? A few months, uh, it went from these 12 people and uh, some more followers of Jesus to 10,000 people. So one out of every four people in Jerusalem where it was a pagan area and a religious area towards Judaism, right? And now one in every four is now a Christian. And you go, well, how did that happen? Were these guys clever? Were they help extra educated? No, no, no. What you're going to see here, and we're going to look at through the rest of this uh, today, is that you're going to see that God uses ordinary in the middle of obstacles to create really beautiful opportunities for transformation. So God identifies the ordinary. He empowers the ordinary in the middle of a complicated obstacle to create some really beautiful opportunities for the gospel to move forward. And here's what's so crazy about this, guys. And if, you're, um, if you're a believer, like believe these things, like we so thankful for what Jesus did here on the cross, right? So thankful. But I want you to understand that that is a beautiful moment for Jesus, but right before that happens, he says something that is so crazy that would have made no sense to anyone in that moment. But in John chapter 16, Jesus is explaining that at one day, this plan is going to be initiated through the Spirit, and it's a good thing that uh, it's going to happen. And so Jesus actually explains to them that it's actually good that he's about to leave, that he's about to go back to his heavenly father. And so uh, in the book of John, we see what's called Jesus' last discourse, the farewell address. This is, uh, with the, this is where we get the, the last supper, the feet washing. And, you know, this is where we get the beautiful prayer that Jesus prays for unity. This is where he talks about the vine and the branches, just abiding in him, all this like beautiful, deep and rich stuff. But one thing he says in there is in John chapter 16, and this is what it says, verse 7, this is, he says this, but very truly I tell you, 
It is good. It is good that I'm going away. What? Hey, I've been with you, but it's good that I go away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So he's saying, guys, you've really, really enjoyed my company. And they're like, yes, we've enjoyed your company, but it's going to be good that I leave. Now, it'd been hard for them to understand this because, I mean, I, I can't imagine, right? Like, I, I don't know what it's like to walk with Jesus for three years. But could you imagine, like, I don't know, like you're hanging out with Jesus all the time and you're like, oh no, we forgot to pack a lunch. And Jesus like, no problem, Africa Jesus. And all of a sudden there's lunch there, right? right? You're going, oh no, we're driving, there's a flat tire. And Jesus like, no, 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 don't even get out of the car, right? Africa Jesus, tire pumps up. Like just those kind of abilities that Jesus has, right? Like, oh no, we forgot a boat. No problem, just hop on my back. What is, go ride on the waves, right? Africa Jesus, and it happens, right? You're walking with Jesus, and you're walking your dog, and it dies. You're on Jesus, and Jesus is like, no problem. Africa Jesus, dog comes back to life, right? Those are the things that Jesus was able to do, like speak life into existence, right? And so dog dies, you bring him back to life, just can continue to transform things. Like, I mean, even this, like if you're sitting with Jesus, and all of a sudden your cat dies, right? You look at Jesus and go help, and he goes, okay, I'll grab a shovel, and I'll help you bury it, right? Because we know how Jesus feels about cats, right? And so you just have these moments where like Jesus is doing crazy things and he is saying, hey, the things that you've witnessed here, lame people walking, blind people seeing, dead people living, right? That is a small glimpse of what's to come and it's good that I'm going because now you don't have to have me right beside you. You can have the spirit inside you. You don't have me right beside you. You can have the spirit of the living God inside you, right? And so the spirit is the plan. And so what we've seen is we've seen some uprising from outside in the government and religious folks. We've seen some, you know, Trojan horses from inside the church that are uh, faking and lying and hypocritical. And so they've already had some obstacles and issues to overcome. And where we find ourselves in Acts chapter 6 is a, another pretty complicated issue. So I'm just going to read it to you, and we're going to talk about it and make some really neat observations that I think are beneficial for you. So lean in, work through time, and here's, here's what it says. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In those days, the number of disciples uh, was increasing. The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Okay, so here we got everything's going good. Uh, they're taking care of each other. They're holding everything in common, and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, there's going to be this obstacle. Pretty big obstacle, by the way. Uh, pretty overwhelming. And so what it tells us is we've got two different people groups here, right? We have the Hellenistic Jews. That comes from the Greek word hella, which is a geographical location of Greece. So this is a different ethnicity. You follow me? And then in Jerusalem, you've got the Hebraic Jews. You've got these Jews that are from the area. Now, we don't know if there's been a lot of Hellenistic Jews that have been living in the area for a while. We don't know if these are like the diaspora. They come back here for Pentecost, and they've just stayed around. We don't know. But we understand that there's a real issue that arises. And so they're looking, and what we would believe is that the apostles were doing a lot of uh, work. There's 12 of them at this point. And these 12 guys, they would have been uh, working really hard, and so they would have been meeting all the time, and they would have been like uh, having conversations about how to expand the gospel, get the gospel in the ears, and how to participate in God's kingdom. And so there are 12 of them, and they were there and available, and uh, they would be sorting through all this stuff, right? And uh, I can imagine they're pretty run ragged and exhausted. This is, you know, a, a church that was next to nothing. Now there's 10,000 just in a few weeks. They don't have the systems or the structures or the plans to do it. And one of the things that they were requ uh, responsible for, and, you know, Jesus' brother tells us this in James, is to take care of orphans and widows. Right? And so all these people are bringing their 
tithes, offering, they're selling their land. We saw it last week with Barnabas, and they're, they're, they're bringing it to the apostles' feet, so the money would come to the apostles' feet, and then they would be responsible for figuring out how to distribute that amongst the, the, those who are in need. And they said that no one had a need, right? They were making sure that no one had a need, and so you can imagine this was a church of a couple hundred, now it's 10,000. These 12 guys are responsible for it all, and that's got to be really, really overwhelming. So, and beyond all that, they're trying to figure out how do we prioritize our time? What do we do? Do we, do we feed people? Do we repair roofs? Do we build wheelchair ramps? Like, where does, should our time and energy go? Or should we be explaining the good news of the gospel as often as we possibly can? Should we be teaching the things that Jesus taught us? Should we, should, should we be doing all those things? And so while all this is happening, they're all worried about these things. What you see happen inside, which by the way, you can look at this all across the globe. This is one of those things that typically happens in churches right? There's this grumbling where our expectations aren't met, right? And so notice that it even says that uh, there was this problem that kind of came out of the deal, right? It, and they go, okay, it's being overlooked. Now, it doesn't seem like they're talking directly to the apostles. It seems like they're talking one to another, and, just, and they're complaining about different levels of needs met and unmet expectations. And so this is a big issue. And uh, more than likely, these guys, as I told you before, <laughs> had different skin colors, right? And from the outside looking in, it sure looked like there were some uh, preferential treatment. Was it on, on purpose? We don't see any repentance from the apostles, so I don't think it's on purpose, but could it be just a lack of awareness? Could it be a lack of understanding, a lack of knowledge? I don't know, but I'm telling you, this is a pretty big obstacle for the church, right? And so what you're going to see is that these pretty big obstacles, we'll see it again in the next couple of weeks, right? these pretty big obstacles that show up, right? They're not absent God's plan. He's seeing them and working them. The Holy Spirit is seeing all these things, bending and shaping all these things for our good, all times, and his glory. So this is an obstacle that comes up, and what God is going to do over and over again, he's going to mesmerize people by let, taking these ordinary people, take this obstacle, lean in and bring these ordinary people into the mix, and there's going to be some beautiful opportunities for people to hear about Jesus, experience Jesus, know Jesus, and be served by people who serve Jesus, right? So you're going to see all that kind of play out. And so we see that there is a real issue here. There's some, what might be prejudice, definitely some um, missteps and mishaps happening in the middle of the church. And so what do we do? It says this in verse 2. So the 12, there they are, they're standing there. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together. Okay, so we're hearing this. Boy, we're, uh, so we gather them all together, and they're going to make a really interesting statement. So they bring them in, and this is what they say, right? First glance, it seems a little arrogant, but here's what they say. It would not be right for us to neglect, to neglect, right, the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Now, at first glance, it seems like they think they're above this. But what I want you to see here, this is really, really important. They are, they have a, they have a value system. And at the highest level of their values is this, the Word of God. Right? It would not be wiser prudent to us if Jesus gave us all this news about him and told us to go share it with the world, go and make disciples of all nations, right? That they should know who God is. They should understand the story of who God is, right? They should understand his heart. It would not be appropriate for us to stop doing this to go do that. Right? So no matter what the outer, out, outer noise is, whatever you hear, whatever the grumbling, there is a precedent. They're going, no, 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 no. Of highest level of importance is we got to make sure that we continue to help people understand the Word of God. So this isn't, this isn't saying that waiting on tables is not appropriate. It isn't saying that caring for orphans and widows is not appropriate. It's just saying that we have to know God's heart before anything that stuff happens. 
right? This is the, you know, the Mary and Martha situation you see in the Gospels where these two sisters invite Jesus over and they're throwing a party. Martha is overwhelmed and in the kitchen trying to take care of all those things and Mary finds herself just sitting and being mesmerized at Jesus and his words. Martha comes in and says, hey, Jesus, will you tell Mary that she should get up and help? That's lazy. I agree, right? And Jesus goes, no, Mary, Martha's doing, and he even goes, the only appropriate thing right now, the most important thing, the only thing, is he is, she's sitting at my feet. She has access to me in my words, right? And so they're going, hey, we got to get access to the people. They got to hear God's heart. They got to know his heart, hear his heart, see his mind, right? Isaiah tells us that our thoughts and ways are not God's thoughts and ways. And the best thing we can do is understand and know God's thoughts and ways and hopefully align our own thoughts and ways with God's thoughts and ways. So he's going, hey, hey, hey. They're going, hey, we got, we don't know what, we understand there's needs. We understand we're missing some things and we want to do it well. We want to do it well, but hey, but we also have this mandate and a calling to hold to this deep value these scriptures. We don't want to misuse them, but boy, do we want to leverage them for the sake of the gospel going into the ears. So they go, we can't do that. Now you can imagine uh, when they hear that, there's probably this collective exhaust, uh, you know, you know, exasperation. They're going, oh, Really? Really, you got people who are hungry. See, these folks don't even care. They don't even care about my people. They don't care about the Hellenistic Jews, right? That, that'd be kind of, maybe the first thought. And so this is what they said instead, right? They're going, hey, yeah. brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known, pay attention to this, who are known to be full of the what? The Spirit, right? Because that's how restoration happens. Be full of the Spirit and wisdom. You know what that means? They know God's Word right? So find some people who've already learned God's Word. They've been filled with the Holy Spirit, right? Let's find some people that are full of the Spirit and of the Word and wisdom, and we will return, we will turn this responsibility over to them. Hey, it's not that we don't think that we should care for people. Now, I don't think we don't, those things shouldn't happen, but we have at the highest level of values that people have to know God's Word, and understand God's word, and then do God's word, right? There's kind of this two-pronged approach, and people who typically hold scriptures really high value say that we do that around here. We talk about something called expository teaching. That means to basically expose what the, the scriptures say. So you open it up, and you read God's word, and you expose the truth of it. So this expository teaching. But inevitably, what happens is expository teaching should also lead to expository living, meaning we know God's Word, and therefore we do God's Word, right? Do God's Word. So there's this two-pronged approach to the going, hey, we got to keep helping people know God's Word. But there's some people who already know God's Word, and they got to start doing God's Word, right? And so they identify, and they go, let's find seven people, right? Choose from among you, and then we'll still give our attention, as it says in verse 4, to prayer and the ministry of the Word. So, can't stop doing that. This is not—we uh, we can't let urgent get in front of important, but if we can stay on important but invite people to deal with the urgent, let's do that. So we'll continue to pray, right? And we'll still do ministry of the Word. Meaning, the way by which this church grew—hear this. The way by which the church went from a couple hundred to 10,000 is not by some clever manufactured scheme, some great music, right? And, you know, great systems— parking lot greeters. No, no, no. The way by which this church did this was prayer, right? Harnessing the power of the Holy Spirit, inviting the Spirit into our life, speaking it, and harnessing God's heart, and reconciling and aligning ourselves to God's heart, prayer, and to the ministry of the Word. 
Now watch this, verse 5. This is really neat. It was an obstacle. God's going to take some ordinary people, and they're going to seize this as a beautiful opportunity. And so watch what happens here. This proposal pleased the whole group. Oh, that's so beautiful. This proposal pleased the whole group, and they chose uh, these people. So they chose, let's see. They're like, hey, let's take Stephen. So Stephen. And then we have uh, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. You see that? Let me point that out. Full of faith in the Holy Spirit. So how do you get full of the Holy Spirit? Well, it's faith. It's you continue to hear from God and do what he says. And as you take those leaps, God continues to catch you, right? So faith in the Holy Spirit. So men who actually believe that God is good and he is loving and gracious and understand the story of this, that you are redeemed, that you are a child of the Most High God. And there's a calling for you to participate in that. That's the faith piece. Faith is an active word, right? It's action. You, you take leaps where God catches you and fills the gap, right? So they go, uh, Stephen, full of faith and the Holy Spirit. So we got Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Also Philip. Here's Philip. Hey, Philip. Uh, Procurus. There you go. Hey, Procurus. Glad you two matched today. Nicanor. All right. Timon. Okay. Uh, Parmenas. Oh, there we go. And, uh, Parnia, and Nicholas from Antioch. Okay. Got them? So they invite these seven people. This is what the, the word that we use here for servant is deacon. This is the office of deacon that's created out of a need of the community to care for those who need care, right? So they create all these people. And by the way, if you look at all these names, why they're kind of awkward and hard to pronounce, uh, so from Antioch, a convert to Judaism, these are all Greek names. Really, really important. Because what's so beautiful about this, and where I find so much challenge in our church right now, right? Particularly as we um, look at, you know, racial complications in our world. Figuring out how to engage in those things with Link University and you know, trying to figure out how to do it. And uh, what we see here, which I think is so important for our church, and I don't have any answers here, guys. Something to be praying and asking the Lord to do is not only do they see that there's a need and want to meet the need, what they do is they actually find people from that demographic right? The, these are Hellenistic Jews and invite them to leadership in the community, right? So how do we do this? You know, uh, how do we invite different ethnicities? How do we invite different nationalities? If we want to be a, you know, a, a more diverse group, you know, multiracial church, then how do we invite people to the table? So they take these seven people, they respond to an obstacle, they take ordinary people, and make it an opportunity, and all of a sudden it says that everybody's happy, and they were thrilled and pleased, and so these are the guys who show up. Now, from this point forward, the person that we're really going to pay attention to is, is Stephen, okay? Stephen. This is why I'm going, hey, hey, Dad, this is a guy to model, right? This is what you can model your life after, Stephen. Stephen is a guy who says, it's not about me. It's not about me, so we're just going to pay attention to what happens in Stephen's life, and so we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about Stephen. So here's what it says next. Uh, they presented these men to the apostles and prayed and laid hands on them. So the word of God spread. You see this? What happens as a result of this? The word of God spread. So how does it spread? Uh, because we hold it at a high value. We invite more people into serving in the community so we can continue to focus. So these, these, these 12 apostles are able to put all their time and energy into getting this word into people's ears. So the word of God spread. The word of God spread. 
the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. See this? As a result of this, so they, they hold the conviction that God's word is what we got to get in people's ears. They hold the conviction that people have to understand this and know it and then do it, right? So we see the word of God spread. And then we see as a result of the word spreading, this stuff, the word spreading. We've got to figure out how to get the word out there. Then it says the number of disciples increased in Jerusalem and it increased rapidly. Now watch this. So he tell you this. The number of people in Jerusalem that grew. And then it actually gives you another pretty interesting thing. And I don't know why. You go, well, why do these need to be two separate? Why don't they just kind of group together? So not only do they talk about a number of disciples increased, right? So just normal common folk. And then it's going to take a different category of people. And watch what it says. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. You go, well, why do they need to qualify that? Now these are religious people. These are people who, for most of their life, thought that they could earn their value, earn their salvation by uh, their behavior or by their performance or their pretense, right? No, the other thing to know about priests is <laughs> in Jerusalem at this time, uh, they were the ones who were responsible for caring for the poor and needy. So imagine this. There's all these poor and needy people in the community. You know, you got these seven deacons organizing groups of people within the church, 10,000, putting them to work. And can you imagine what's happening in Jerusalem as a result of it? And all of a sudden, I imagine these priests are kind of paying attention going, whoa, 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 whoa. We thought we, we thought we had to appease God by doing this. These guys aren't doing it because they're appeasing God. They're doing it because they love God. They're doing it out of the overflow of their heart. There's something really crazy about them. And so they were drawn, I imagine, to this, this new movement. That's why I still think wholeheartedly the best thing we can do as a church is not sit on the corner with bullhorns. The best thing we can do in the church is to continue to serve our communities, to meet the needs that are out there, while we continue to invite people into the story, share the good news of the gospel, help people understand God's word, and serve, serve our community. So we see those things happen, right? So these are full of faith, Holy Spirit people. So um, here's what happens, right? So the Holy Spirit uses God's word to compel us to serve. So, you want to know whether or not you're really, really understanding God's Word? Whether or not what's happening on the weekend when you listen or when you're reading your Bible or in your small group? At some point, understanding God's Word will compel you to want to serve other people. So these are guys who are full of Holy Spirit and wisdom. So they have Holy Spirit in their life and they understand who God is in His heart and it compels them to serve. So, let's say is you're only as deep as the last person you serve. So this isn't just about like spiritual obesity where we just, you know, memorize scriptures, memorize scriptures. There is a component of this of going, you'll know if you're actually understanding God's word when you're not serving people because you want to impress people or because you think that'll make God happy with you or to rectify a bad situation. You're doing it out of just what God has done in you. Like it just transforms you. You go, well, uh, okay, I'm ready to do that. Well, how do I, how do I serve? Where do I serve? And I think there's three components for that. Uh, I'd say they're kind of priority. I'd say need, skill, passion, right? So find a need. Like right now on the weekends, uh, just showing up here and helping brand new people learn to park their cars on Sunday mornings, right? In the next few weeks as we open up Kids Zone, loving families, right? By serving them because that's a need, right? Now that might feel below you, right? One of the things I love is I love seeing people with doctorates and PhDs and, you know, high levels of education throw on a fluorescent vest and help park cars, 
right? There's just something like this. This is not about a passion or a skill, probably. This is about a, a need that's right in front of us, right? So need, skill, passion, those are some really, really uh, good way of trying to figure out where you can serve right now. I know that there are our local strategic partners uh, from uh, uh, Lighthouse uh, and Youth Center in Oxford. You got Urban Promise. Those are local places right now. There's ways that you can serve. You can go pack food on Thursdays at Lighthouse. Uh, yesterday, uh, they gave out over a thousand you know, bags of food to mostly the local Hispanic community in Oxford. Really, really beautiful. There's ways to serve. You can find those ways. You're looking for ways to serve. Email Ben at clcfamily.church. He'll, he'll help you find some of those things. And that's B-E-N, not B-I-N, if you're confused, Ben at CLC Family, right? We want to help you do that. Only if it's compelled out of you understanding God's word and wanting to serve others the way that Jesus has served you and has called you to serve others, right? And so we see that happen. And now— the whole rest of this story is just going to be about Stephen. So watch what it says next, verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, so that's might and graciousness, God, very gracious, very forgiving, very kind, and yet has this spiritual authority and empowerment that's with him, performed great wonders and signs among the people, right? So ordinary man is confronted by obstacles that the Holy Spirit uses for opportunities and what way to serve, right? So we see Stephen step up to the plate in a role of service. He's carrying a towel. He's carrying, carrying for other people, right? This is an ordinary lay person. This is like everyone in our church who's not on our staff. That's what we are, right? And so this is Stephen, and God has done something in his life. He's taken this obstacle, and he's made an opportunity. Now, God's going to get the credit for the opportunity because Stephen is an ordinary individual. He would not have been trained in this. Would not have gone to seminary. Like this is just a, a normal, average Joe. The same type of person who you are, who goes, no, I'm not ready. I can't do this. I don't have the experience. I don't have the education. Right? That's, that's who Stephen is. And what does he do first? He starts serving. Now watch this. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. So all of a sudden, Stephen's here, and these religious people start noticing, and they're looking at him, and they're going, we don't like him, right? We don't like him. We don't trust him, and he is messing up our religious thing. If people start following him, they'll stop giving money to my religious efforts. They'll start paying my salary, and so they don't like it, and so they start to argue with Stephen. Remember, he's ordinary, so they probably can catch him in a trap because he doesn't know enough. He's not, a, he's not a minister of the gospel, right? He hasn't been trained. This isn't a professional Christian or pastor, but verse 10 says this, but they, but they could not stand up against him against the wisdom of the Spirit, the, uh, the, the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So one, he understands the Word. Two, Holy Spirit now is empowering him. This is one of the hardest parts about going, well, I don't think I can do this. I can't serve. What if God asks, what if somebody asks me a question I don't have the answer to? And I'd go this. I'd just challenge you and say, where's your faith? Do you trust that the Holy Spirit is real? Do you trust that the Holy Spirit can meet you where you are? You can invite him into that. And so, uh, Stephen values God's Word. Makes opportunities for the apostles to teach it. Now watch this. So what we see here is a very high value for Stephen and God's word. Stephen makes opportunities for the apostles to continue to teach it by serving, but not, that's not the only way he values it. He values it enough that he actually learns it so he can use it. Right? Another part for us here, guys. It's not just we got to serve. 
Now, just that we have served, free up, you know, pastors that continue to communicate God's word, all those kind of things. The reality is the greatest sermon that people are going to hear in our community is not going to come from me. It's going to come from you, right? So not only do they value God's word, that they allow the apostles to continue to use it, he values the word in the way that he starts to learn it and know it so he can participate in it and share it, right? So Stephen responds in all these things. Verse 11, Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Okay, so they're going, "Uh Uh-oh, we got to stop him. Let's actually slander him. This is ad hominem attacks. We don't have any real good arguments. Let's just slander him and take shots at him and create falsehood lies about him, right? So um, usually people who like to control hate people they can't control. You, You probably experienced that, right? People who like to control, hate people they can't control. And so these people like to be in control, and they hate people they can't control. Stephen, you can't control. Powered by the Holy Spirit. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen. Let's throw in a guy to seize him. There we go. There he is. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. So now Stephen is there. They're all in front. Everybody's watching. Everybody's listening. They are all there, right? slander and stir then lie they produce false witnesses who testified this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law so mean this fellow right never stops speaking against the holy place so he speaks against religion maybe and against the law that's god's word right these are falsehoods for we have heard him say that this jesus of nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs moses handed down to us you see this this is this is one of the fears of of christianity is it will it'll mess up the things that you really really cling to your your sacred cows in in religion in church right? Your sacred traditions. And so people like their control. They hate people they can't control, right? And so they're going to know, no, no, Stephen is saying that Jesus can come and destroy all that, wipe it all out. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, looked intently at him. And they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. That's what they say. So they're looking, ordinary guy, right? There's an obstacle becoming an opportunity, ordinary guy in front of him and so now he has been drugged before this council and just be real clear here it doesn't get better for Stephen he will eventually die by rocks that these guys will throw at him so now this is um, a tense situation we find ourselves in Acts chapter 7 verse 1 this is what it says then the high priest the high priest right the high priest sitting there asked Stephen High priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? So he's been drugged before him, right? Just for serving, for knowing God's word, all those kind of things. So he's been drugged before them. And then this guy asked one question, is this true? Is this true? Is this true? So now what's about to happen is Stephen is actually going to preach the longest sermon that we find in the book of Acts. From any layperson, any professional Christian, this is the longest sermon right so he's about to is a, then that, the rest of this chapter the majority of this chapter is now going to be Stephen going to do this and this is why this matters this is why this thing matters here what Stephen is about to do is Stephen is about to tell them their whole story and he's going to start with creation and he's going to go you all know how we got here we all believe in a deity right so we all believe that at least those religious people and they all had this kind of foundation that there was a, a, a creator God 
And so Stephen's going to start with them already having that foundation. He knew they had common ground there, so there is a creator. And what Stephen's going to do is he's going to go through the entire Old Testament and remind them of this brokenness. So uh, here we are in the creation fall. There's the brokenness. And then Stephen's going to pick up and talk very specifically about God's promise for redemption. And so he's going to go, hey, you know, there was a guy named Abraham, right? There was a guy named Abraham. You know Abraham. And God told him to go to the land. He'll show him. And so God is going to promise that through him, he'll bless all nations, right? Where there is no way, he will make a way. That's the promise that, that Stephen is going to remind them of. That God said, you cannot fix yourselves. Go back to the Tower of Babel. Go all the way back to Cain and Abel and Adam and Eve. We are a broken people. And if it's to us to fix ourselves out of the fall, it is impossible. But then in Genesis chapter 11, God showed up and reminded him through Abraham that there would be a way. And that at some point in the, the far future, that God was going to make a way where there was no way. And then he, reminded him about, then he would remind them about Isaac, Abraham's son. They said, you know, then Isaac had a son, right? And that had a son named Jacob. You know Jacob, the God of Jacob. You're the children of the God of Jacob, right? This guy who wrestled with God, struggled with God. And he was manipulative and coercive. And yet God was still gracious and loving. There's still hope for this religious guy. And then Jacob, you know, he had those 12 sons and one of those sons, Joseph, had that really fancy technicolor dream coat, right? That, that this guy named Joseph, and God is actually going to harness this crazy obstacle where Joseph ends up in slavery in Egypt. But somehow through honoring God, loving God, knowing God's word, and serving God anyway, he's going to rise up to be the number two in all of Egypt. And what Jacob didn't know and what Jacob's brothers didn't know who sold him into slavery. God was using those moments to bend and shape them all for the family's good because God only gives good gifts and for his glory. And so he's going to rise up to number two in Egypt and, and the entire, the entire, Jacob's entire tribe, right? All 12 sons are going to be welcomed into Egypt. And they're going to create this nation, this nation that tries to look back to God and honor God. And he's going, hey, hey, you are part of that nation. You're part of that nation. And they're going to live in some good moments in Egypt. But then they're going to lose sight of that it was God's goodness and God's gifts and God's work that did it all. They're going to lose sight of all that. So then one day, they're going to end up in slavery and God's going to send them, you know them guys, another one named Moses. And Moses is going to make an announcement that God's going to send a prophet to call us all to repentance. And he says, a prophet like myself and like Moses is going to lead them out of this slavery and out of this captivity because that's what happens in the fall. That Moses is going to be a picture of what's to come in terms of this redemption being bought back. And God's going to do some supernatural intervention. Hey, Sanhedrin, you know this stuff. But you know what's interesting is Moses is going to go be with God and intercede for his people on behalf of God. On behalf of God, right? Like, and on behalf of the people, he's going to go do that. And while he's gone, getting God's word. You know, you know, you guys did it. Your ancestors did it. You weren't interested in that. Because you weren't looking for some supernatural transformative redemption. You were just looking for something else to worship and placate you. And so while Moses is gone, you know, your ancestors, my ancestors, they rose up and declared to Aaron, 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 we don't want to wait on Moses. Just give us something to worship. And so Aaron takes all the gold and makes it into these golden calves. And your people, my people, they worshiped these golden calves. They worship these golden calves. They thought that that would be the thing they'd worship. See how silly that is? But you do the same. We do the same, right? We worship our comfort. We worship our self-preservation. We worship our control. 
We worship our taste buds, right? We've all, so he's going to go, that's what they did. That's what they did, and it's going to get really, really messy. But one of the nice things is while this is happening, God's going to have another leader, right? You know him as Joshua, who's going to try to lead the people in the promised land. And while this is happening, God also gives the tabernacle, right? This place where they're going, okay, we can't worship golden calves, but how do we worship God? How do we get close to God? And he's like, you know, God gave you this, this place where you could access him, this tabernacle, this like portable tent where God would reside and his laws and his word, the word of God would lay there and people would come and they'd worship him. And then Joshua would lead him into the promised land. And then there'd be more godly leaders that were at one point really ordinary, right? That would take obstacles and turn them into opportunities. One of those was a guy named David. You know him. Boy, do you love him. King David. And David was going to announce that there's no longer going to be a permanent, I mean, a portable tabernacle for people to worship, but there's going to be a temple where you can at least have access to that God because you want to find access to that God. But no, David's going to make the vision and the promise, but it's going to be his son, his son, Solomon, who's going to build the temple. So he reminds him of all this. He's going through this whole thing, this plan of redemption. He's going, look, do you not see thousands of years of church history, uh, uh, human history? God was orchestrating this plan. <laughs> and then he's going to go, but here's what's crazy. You've become infatuated with the building. You've become infatuated with the keys to the door locks, right? You've become infatuated to that place and then charging a mission to that place. You've lost sight of it being God's house. But then he's even going to call out the kind of the ridiculousness of that. Like, really? God's house? Do you think that that place can contain God? Do you think somehow your behavior and your manipulation of the rules is pleasing to God? Do you think you can contain God? And then after that long sermon, Stephen's going to give them kind of a response. And he's going to harness uh, some scriptures written in Isaiah 66, a prophet. And this is what it says. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, this is Isaiah, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house would you build for me? Guys, look at this. This is like trinkets. What kind of house could you build for God? Like, you think you can do something? You can make it big enough place for God to reside? Like, says the Lord, or where will my resting place be? Hey, hey, how big do you think God's bed is? Like, is it a king-size bed? What's bigger than a king-size bed? Is it like, yeah, you take two twin beds and make them a king? You take two king-size beds and make them a God's bed? Like, how, how big do you think it will be? And then he says something else. Has he not made all these things? So Stephen's going, you're trying to control this God, this mighty and perfect and holy God who's wanting to welcome you back into his kingdom, right? And you are you're thinking somehow you do something to earn God's favor and you get some of his glory? Like, you're going to build something for God? Like, has he not made all these things? This would be like, imagine you got a new neighbor who moves into your neighborhood and they uh, come and knock on your door like um, three weeks later and they give you cookies, right? Because they want to go, happy to be a neighbor. And no, deep down you feel a little bad because you feel like you should have done that for them first. So they go back to their house and you're going, oh no, we should give them something. So then you take the cookies that they just made and you cut them in sixth, right? So you give them like little cookie bites, and you just take it back to them and go, hey, I made you some cookie bites, right? How would that person do? They think you are, you are a fool and a hypocrite. 
did I not make those cookies and bring them to you? So not, one, you don't even enjoy the things I give you. Instead, you pretend like you do something to bring it right back to me. Has God not made all these things? So Stephen's like, hey, what have you guys actually made other than trouble? Right? So Stephen's going to get this. He's going to give this really, really, really beautiful talk. And then he's going to say something that's really, really harsh. But I want you to hear this. This is not a gotcha statement. We like our gotcha statements. This isn't clever sarcasm so, so you can get owned on the internet. None of that kind of stuff. This is not Stephen's approach. But he is about to speak some real hard truth. And this is what he says. You stiff-necked people. That would have been a, an insult that Jews were aware of. It literally means to resist God. Right? You know, like if you're trying to push somebody down and they're like leaning back in and holding their neck tight like that. So you stiff neck people. Talking about the imposture towards God. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised and boy, that's a shot because they understood the story of Abraham and the mark of people that were inside this covenant. This thing that God promises that he will make a way where there's no way and there's nothing you could do to mess it up. And, and the symbol of that promise was uncircumcision. Uncircumc- and he's going, your hearts are uncircumcised. That covering isn't covering you because you don't believe the promise. You think you earn your wealth and your salvation and your glory and your value. You stiff-necked people. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the, see it? Holy Spirit. You see, there's this move that God wants to do, and the one thing that's standing in the way of that real transformation is you resisting the Holy Spirit. You're not going, God, 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 I can't fix it. I can't make it. God, would you please, please, with your Holy Spirit? So, so Stephen is speaking some real hard truth to them and saying you're defiant to the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? Let's go back. Isaiah, Jeremiah. Did your ancestors not want them all to shut up because they kept talking about this God who would make a way where there is no way and a guy who leveled the playing field and invited all nations, all tribes, all, all creeds into God's world? Was there ne- ever a prophet that you heard those things and didn't just persecute him? They even killed the one who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And John the Baptist, right? And now you have betrayed and murdered him. So they're going, here's a really crazy thing. There's all these different people. And then Jesus came. And you know what you did is you actually murdered him. Because he was coming to buy back and pay the price for your sins to invite you into the kingdom. You go, no, we like the kingdom we've already built. You who received the law that was given through the angels but have not obeyed it. So you see, this is all this. You've got God's word. We have God's word, but you have not obeyed it. God's heart is here, and you have ignored it and used it for your gain and your own value and your own things. You have sought the scriptures to make your points and help you and preserve you. No, it says, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, <laughs> they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Do you understand the weirdness of this? I, mean, I don't even know what this is. Is this like a... <laughs> I don't even know. Like, this is so strange. These are these are grown men, and they're going <laughs> right. Like, I mean, these are like this is crazy. You know, it gets even funnier. I mean, watch this. So he gnashed his teeth at him. But Stephen, again, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory and saw Jesus up there. So Stephen, in the middle of this moment, he looks up and guess what he sees? He sees Jesus. He looks up there and he sees Jesus. So full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, he's the only one who can see it. Nobody else can see it. So he's like, oh, I probably should let these guys know what I see. So then he says, look, he said, I see heaven open up. 
I see heaven open up and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. Circle that. We'll get back to us. At this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him. Do you understand this? So first they gnashed their teeth. Now they're sticking their hands in their ears going, we can't hear you. We can't hear you. You understand like the foolishness of this moment. And they all rushed at him. Verse 58. Dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. That becomes Paul, greatest missionary in the history of the world. Right now, he is the greatest persecutor of Christians. And all these guys go, this guy's trustworthy. And they take off their cloaks and lay them at his feet. Because you know why? They don't want to get them dirty. Those things are heavy. It'd be hard to throw. They want to throw hard, and they don't want to get blood on it. So they lay it at the feet. Now watch this. While they were stoning them, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. See that? Lord, do not hold the sin against them. This is so important, guys. And it says that he's going to go to sleep. That means he's going to die. So you see this crazy tension. This isn't a gotcha moment. This is exactly what the word does to us. What it does to us and how, it should, how we should participate in it. You see there's these, these two prongs and there's this tension that's created. On one side is the, the grace, right? And on the other side is the truth. So Stephen is saying, you're stiff-necked people. Hear me. Some of you are stiff-necked people. You are lying to and resisting the Holy Spirit and it will not end well for you. Right? And so Stephen is claiming this truth. This is Jesus telling to the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. Right? There's, there's an expectation that we live differently. We take God's word and we go and we live it and we teach it and we participate in it. That's where we live our life and find the greatest joy. But so yeah, that's that. This is this deep truth. Don't sin anymore. Walk away from that. Go live a better life. Lead your family better. God has better for you. God wants you to serve because he served you so well. That's why you feel shame, so you read God's word, that you spend time with him, that you don't resist what the Spirit's telling you. That's, that's truth. But on the other side, the same tension, you can't have one or the other. Just truth by itself is fundamentalism and legalism. And on the other side, you have this grace. You see what he says here? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. You know where you get that from, right? Jesus said the same thing on the cross. God, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Right? And looked at the world and going, oh, Lord, they haven't met you yet. They don't have your spirit. How could I expect them to live like they did? Right, don't hold the sin against them. No, you got to have truth, right? This isn't, oh, just follow your heart. You're a unique butterfly. You are a unique butterfly, and you will die, and you will melt, and you will go into the dirt, right? So there isn't just this side over here. So fundamentalism is on this side. On this side over here, there's just this laissez-faire, eat, drink, be merry, but eventually you'll ruin your life and those around you. Right? And so there's this tension. These two things are held up together. So Jesus looked at the woman caught in adultery, and he said, did anybody condemn you? And she goes, no. And he says, neither why. He could have. Because he told him, let the one without sin cast the first stone. He could have thrown the stone. He says, neither do I. Grace, I'm not going to condemn you. Truth. But go and leave your life of sin. Right? So Stephen makes this statement. He says, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. Don't hold the sin against them. And then he died. And as they're throwing rocks at him, what I love about this moment is uh, Luke wants us to know, like, Luke wants us to know. One of the observers, and one of the things you know about Luke writing the gospel of Acts, or the, the book of Acts is he spends a lot of time with Paul. So Saul, uh, highly religious, highly educated, high pedigree person who had all these accolades. Saul has this moment with Jesus where he is transforming and goes, God, I'm so sorry for persecuting you by persecuting your followers, right? So that's what, what, what Saul becomes Paul. 
But a lot of the journey that Paul is on, he takes Luke with him. So Luke is having conversations with Paul, right? Hey, so when did you start paying attention to this? What was life like before? Whatever. And so when Luke decides to input Saul into this story, when he doesn't show back up for a chapter or two later, two or three chapters, right? One or two. Uh, if he doesn't, he doesn't show up for a while. So why does he input, input him here? And the only thing I can guess is in that moment, Saul was a witness to Stephen, who was full of grace and full of truth. And when Stephen was saying, don't hold their sin against them, you know what he's talking about? All those ones throwing rocks and Saul. This becomes the first moment, I think, where Saul, some work is done, ground is being tilled for God to show up and transform his heart. So it's in this moment, ordinary guy in the middle of these things, the middle of these things, God is using him and the grace that he offers to the people to prepare this guy to this massive conversion to go be the greatest missionary in the history of the world. So I got three thoughts I just kind of want to kind of give you as, um, as we close, okay? First one's this. Uh, this ends uh, poorly for Stephen, but it ends really great for him as well. He goes to heaven, but his last moments on earth are painful. And I just would just be very clear with you, suffering is a part of the Christian walk. It is a part of the Christian walk. There'll be different degrees, but there will be suffering for you as you walk in this. There will be suffering, but it's a part of it. I don't want you to think that we're preparing you for this fake puppies and rainbows thing. Being a Christian, walking in Christ is difficult. But what I'll point out here is most of the difficultness doesn't come from the world. It actually comes from the religious. comes from the religious. So suffering is a a part of it, right? Suffering is a, a, a part of it. Second thing is this. The Holy Spirit is with you and uses you and will probably use you in a much greater way than he'll ever use me. Right? Like, the Holy Spirit is with you and uses you, and he wants you to know his word, and he wants you to be able to share it with other people. He wants you to serve. Holy Spirit wants you to serve and then know and share God's word. Really, really neat. And the third one is this, and I think this is really, really, really important. I don't want you to miss it. When you look back at uh, the, the scriptures, when you look in, it says, when, when Stephen looked up, it says, look, he said, I see heaven open and a son of man standing at the right hand of God. Guys, uh, typically, when, um, in fact, every other time in Scripture where it talks about uh, Jesus being in heaven, you know what it says he's doing? Sitting. Sitting at the right hand of God. Sitting at the right hand of God. Sitting at the right hand of God. He's just sitting there. But in this moment, you see in this beautiful thing, you see uh, Jesus look out and it says he's standing, meaning he's watching and he's encouraging and he's celebrating and he's advocating for his child. And I just go, if you're in suffering right now, Jesus is not feet propped up and eh, it's going to be okay. He is standing up and he is, he is fully engaged in watching you and watching your story unfold and watching the, and wanting to sustain you with his grit and his power and his might. So I just would say, if you're in this place of pain, would you just pause on a place of pain pain and just try to imagine Jesus getting up out of his throne and looking down with so much pride. You know when people stand up out of their chair, right? It's like a sign of respect and celebration, right? Someone walks in, you stand up, so Jesus is standing up and he's looking at you as his child and he is so proud and so proud of you. And that's what I love, the name Stephen. It's the Greek word for crown. It literally is what uh, they would have given in the Olympics back in the day, uh, Stephanos, right? A crown. It means a victory or an overcomer. 
And so the reality is that there is suffering, but God wants to use ordinary people in the middle of obstacles that he's going to create, powered by his Holy Spirit, to, for opportunities to transform the world, transform our lives, transform our hearts, and allow us to overcome. And so it's the reminder, Jesus says in John 16, in this world you'll have trouble. But you know what he says? He says, but take heart. I've overcome the world. And so I just want to invite you into that. Invite you and ask him the helm of the Spirit of the living God. Would you ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you and guide our vision, guide our speaking, guide our hearing, and guide our trusting. Like would we, would we lean in fully and see God is at the helm and his Spirit is wanting to invade our lives, allow us to be overcomers. And one day we'll stand in glory while Jesus is standing with us. But for now we get to lean in and ask God, to have his way. So we're going to sing a song together. I don't know if you want to stand, if you want to sit, you want to close your eyes, you want to pause, but just for a moment, would you just imagine the God of the universe looking at you the way that Jesus looked at Stephen and so proud of your willingness to overcome and engage. Will you sing with me?
Well, guys, uh, it, it's great to be with you. I can't wait for us to be live and in person together. So I told you at the beginning of this talk that I was going to give you a great gift of being less than an hour. Uh, I didn't do that. So now, fathers, what I want you to get is the, the, the gift to me was a little bit of extra teaching of God's Word so it can transform your heart and mind and help you serve and share this good news with other people. And that, we love you. If you need anything, uh, prayer requests, those kind of things. If you're watching online, you can actually click on the little link in the caption or go to clcfamily.church and you can find the connect card there. Would you let us know how we can pray for you or support you? And if there's anything we can do for or with you. And so you'll be hearing more news about how we open up over the next couple of weeks. But until then, please stay safe and stay gracious and cling to God's truth. Love you guys. See you next week.